Welcome. Church of the Advent is an Anglican congregation in Denver, Colorado, that seeks to share in the life of God by redefining and reorienting everything around the gospel of Jesus Christ. We hope you are challenged, encouraged, and move closer toward the gospel by this week's message. Isaiah takes us on a journey, and I was thinking, it's a journey. It starts with really small, inauspicious beginnings. It's got a lot of discouragement, a lot of hardship in the middle. It ends with a huge, awesome vision of what can be. And I thought, oh, maybe I could compare this to humble little unassuming Frodo Baggins, his journey to destroy the one ring fraught with hardship and discouragement and the triumph of good over evil. But then I thought, well, I don't know. If I use the Lord of the Rings as an illustration today, Jordan might feel like he needs to wait for a while before the next time he can bring Middle Earth into a sermon. And I don't want to take that away from him. Uh, Yeah, you're welcome. So uh, I didn't. But also that illustration doesn't do justice to the grand almost explosively big nature of the final word God brings into this prophecy today. Tolkien's awesome. I love that story. But I felt like, man, it just really doesn't do, vi- do justice to the vision for God's mission that Isaiah is going to lay out in front of us. This completely unexpected triumph that concludes Isaiah's story today just far outshines Tolkien's creativity. To put this in context in the book, Isaiah 49 is the second of Isaiah's four servant songs. There are four kind of poems embedded in the book that talk about the servant of Yahweh, the servant of the Lord. And the exact identity of the servant can be hard to pin down. Commentators argue back and forth. Is the servant Isaiah the prophet? Is the servant the whole people of Israel acting in a restored, faithful, missional way? Is the servant the Messiah coming someday to do more than Isaiah or even the whole nation together on mission could do? And the reason commentators argue and discuss and spend so many words on that is because there's evidence for all three conclusions. And I think today, even in our text, even this one servant song, we're actually going to see Isaiah's reference, his identification of the servant, shift from himself to the people to eventually something that only Messiah can do. So we're going to jump into the story Isaiah gives us. After calling his whole audience, the coastlands, pay attention, you peoples from far away, to listen, Isaiah gives us three sentences that follow the same pattern. Each of these sentences has the same two thoughts. First, God preparing the prophet. Then, that preparation happening in an obscure place, away from the public eye, out of sight. So, the Lord called me before I was born. That's preparation. While I was in my mother's womb, he named me. That's obscurity. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. Preparation. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. Obscurity. He made me a polished arrow. That's preparation. In his quiver, he hid me away. Obscurity. So what kind of preparation does the prophet go through? Well, the broad answer is he's called by God. That's the first thing Isaiah says, Lord called me. But then he gets into some specifics with a couple of military metaphors. And these appear here, these military words, swords and arrows, because for the past four or five chapters, Isaiah has been telling the people something amazing, something they've been longing to hear for generations. And that is, your captors, this giant, violent, military superpower, Babylon, are finally getting taken out of the way. How? Well, Cyrus is going to come in with the Persian army, and he's going to defeat them in a bunch of very literal battles. So chapters 45 through 48 are chock full of military language, and it's very real, very concrete, like this is how the battles are going to be. This is a military victory that's going to free the way for you to get back to Jerusalem. That's the message that people have wanted to hear. You get to go back to the land. But there's military stuff happening in the way, and so after four chapters of very literal military language... Isaiah keeps a couple of the words in play, but now they're metaphors. 
Now he says, Cyrus isn't the warrior. It's not us fighting. Nobody's getting trained to actually use literal swords and arrows on each other. If anybody's a warrior, it's God. And I, the prophet, am being made like a tool, an implement, a weapon in God's hands. So here's the two metaphors. He made my mouth like a sharp sword, and he made me a polished arrow. A mouth sword, uh, we see that we see that later. We see that in Jesus in the final battle at the end of Revelation. We see Hebrews 4, the word of God being like a sharp sword. And that, that refers to words that are powerful, words that can win. An arrow that's polished can fly farther, faster, more accurately than an arrow that's rough, that's not polished. This is the kind of preparation that God is doing to the prophet. These images are communicating the power and effectiveness of the prophet's message for accomplishing God's mission. So the servant is prepared by God for a special task, a special message to deliver, but that preparation happens in obscurity. He's not a famous servant, not a public figure, not well-known, not widely regarded. The servant doesn't have millions of Twitter followers or hundreds of thousands of podcast subscribers or anything like that. He's from an out-of-the-way place. He's just being prepared away from the public eye for God's purpose. And you might think that could lead to a little bit of discouragement, all this, like, away from the public eye, things happening in secret, not being on a platform or a stage or anything. And so God offers some encouragement. Look at the end of verse 3. He says, you are my servant Israel, in whom I will be glorified. He offers this encouragement in the face of the obscurity. You'd think God knows, I think, how that would feel. All this information about, you're going to be prepared, but it's going to be in secret, but here's encouragement that you're going to need. Now, a little note here, we see the meaning of the servant shifting here, right? Up to this point, Isaiah's been using a lot of, I think I call it, poetic autobiographical language to describe his own calling, his own preparation. He's putting himself in the role of servant. But now he pivots a little bit and he says, God says, you're my servant Israel, the one in whom I'll be glorified. And there's this overlap between Isaiah the prophet and Israel the people for who is the servant, who is the one who's on mission for God. And that overlap actually gives us a really helpful takeaway. Servant meaning both Isaiah the prophet and Israel the people, that reminds us that mission isn't just for ordained folks. Mission isn't just for people who are on staff at a church. Mission is for all of us. Corporately, all all of us, the people of God, we have mission to do. We participate as the servant of Yahweh in projecting God's message, bringing that to the people who need to hear it, in more aspects we're going to look at later of participating in God's big, grand, glorious global mission. We might assume that Isaiah was being called and prepared for something that was super unique, super special, and yes, there were special preparations for special tasks, but he reminds us that all of us are God's servant in whom God will be glorified. But despite that encouragement, uh, there's a discouragement that sets in. It's kind of the middle of the story. Verse 4 shows us a discouraging lack of progress. Isaiah says, I've labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing and vanity. If we remember Isaiah's vision of his calling and commission in chapter 6, we can put this in context. After seeing the throne of God in heaven and hearing the angels singing, holy, 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 and being purified by the one angel with the coal to touch his lips, this big, beautiful story Isaiah gives us in chapter 6, he hears the words of the Lord commissioning him for his specific ministry. And here's what God tells Isaiah to do. Go, say to this people, keep listening, but don't comprehend. Keep looking, but do not understand until the cities lie waste, until the Lord sends everyone far away. Wow. It's no wonder that years later he's concerned that he spent his strength for nothing and for vanity. 
The second half of Isaiah's concern, the complaint that he's voicing to God, is worth paying attention to, though. He says, yet surely my cause is with the Lord, and my reward is with my God. On the surface, we see, hey, Isaiah's holding on to some faith in spite of discouragement, and that's what's happening, yes. But I want us to dig a little deeper under the surface, because there's more for us to profit from here. We struggle with this sometimes. We, we put a positive spin on genuine negative realities and kind of like put on a superficial positive kind of piety. And Isaiah doesn't do that. He looks the reality of what's going wrong square in the face and then talks to God about what God is responsible for. Isaiah's words, my cause is with the Lord and my reward is with my God, are holding God accountable for the ultimate success for the state of Isaiah's ministry. The word uh, cause there is a really common word in the Hebrew Bible, but it's normally translated justice, fair, right, or correct judgment, a right decision. And reward for us is like something extra, kind of like bonus you get, but reward is just wages. It's a real boring word, nothing fancy about it. It's just a paycheck kind of word. Isaiah's saying the just, the kind of justice that God is going to do, the right outcome, the right wages for this ministry I'm doing, well, that's God's responsibility. He's going to God, and he feels comfortable, and he's modeling for us, saying, God, this is, this is terrible. This isn't going the way I planned. This isn't going with any kind of discernible results or progress, and I'm holding you responsible for that. And it's okay to do that. And I, wanna, I don't want to deny that there's a positivity in that. Knowing God's responsibility frees us. We sometimes, we sometimes stand back and don't get involved in ministry. We don't go on mission because we get stressed out about if we can get it over the finish line and if we can make sure the results happen and if we can guarantee the success. And what Isaiah is modeling for us here is we don't have to do that. We can trust the results to God. God's the one who's going to write the paycheck at the end of the work week. But I want us to pause and in this negative feeling of no discernible progress, I want us to consider some ways where we sense that, where we feel the same discouragement Isaiah did as we look at mission and ministry going on around us. And for my threes and sevens and eights, sitting still in a negative emotion is a really tough thing for me to ask, asking myself that too, so we can do it. Let's go. First off, we might feel just like Isaiah. We might feel like we look around and we see years go by and ministry effort poured out and the results just aren't there. It doesn't look like anything's happening. Maybe there's relationships you've been in where you're hoping to see the gospel take hold in someone's heart. You're hoping to, to see some discipleship happen, some spiritual growth. You've been part of a ministry or a program around church, and it just seems like after years, things have plateaued and no, nothing's going anywhere. We feel like Isaiah. We've spent our strength for nothing, for vanity. The second category of frustration we may feel at seeing the ministry, the mission of God not moving forward is realizations that the church at large often abdicates its own role in God's mission. Hard look in a mirror. If we look around Christendom today, we can see segments of the church prioritizing loyalty to and involvement in earthly power structures over loyalty to God's mission. We see Christians behaving in complicity with political power brokering and hoarding abusive or authoritarian hierarchies in churches or in the communities around us, systemic racism, other oppressive endeavors. Those are all very current-sounding topics and buzzwords, but please don't accuse me of shoehorning modern issues into Isaiah's ancient words. Isaiah himself repeatedly called God's people to repent of their acts of oppression. The very first word he delivers from God to the people, chapter 1, verse 17, ends with this application, learn to do good, seek justice, Correct oppression. Defend the fatherless. Plead for the widow. 
Well, maybe someone could object. He was talking about correcting somebody else's behavior, somebody else's oppression. No, directly addressing the people in chapter 10, God's word says, ah, you who make iniquitous decrees, who write oppressive statutes to turn aside the needy from justice, what will you do on the day of punishment? Well, don't the people get a chance to talk? You might ask, sure. By the time we get to chapter 58, the people are in a dialogue with God, and here's what the people ask. Why do we fast, but you don't see? Why do we humble ourselves if you don't notice? And God replies, look, you serve your own interest on your fast day. You oppress all your workers. Is not this the fast that I choose? To loose the bonds of injustice, to undo the thongs of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free, and to break every yoke. And then lest anybody conclude, well, yeah, that was all cool for Isaiah in his day, but like it's different now. Jesus made it different somehow. It's all spiritual or something. Jesus shows up and he reads this text from Isaiah 61 in the synagogue and says to the people who heard him, this day is scripture fulfilled in your ears. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me. He has sent me to bring good news to the oppressed. That's still Jesus's mission today. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and release to the prisoners. But when we see the shortcomings of the people of God in that area, we can feel frustration at where is mission going to go with this undermining it. Or maybe a third category to step on even more toes. We can feel frustration at the lack of mission progress that we can connect to us and our individual sins and not pointing a finger at some other group, but looking real hard at ourselves. And we see that mission progress falters when the people of God harm the kingdom by walking in their own individual sinful behaviors. We're far too quick and easily tempted to engage in mission undermining activities like angry words, polarization, name calling, selective outrage, performative righteousness and justice, virtue signaling, hypocrisy, passion for personal comfort, materialism, pursuit of American dream over God's mission. Lust, infidelity, a light or flippant treatment of marriage or divorce. These vices, by the way, again, not just some list I came up with thinking creatively or trying to bring a bunch of modern stuff into the text. If we were not doing this special world mission day, jump over to Isaiah 49, we would be continuing in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, and these would be the exact applications we'd be considering because that's where Jesus goes next. Last week, Jordan showed us the, the gospel um, goodness that Jesus produces in his followers, far different from mere religious righteousness. And gospel goodness, rubber meets the road in all of those areas, is what Jesus spends the rest of the chapter discussing. So, that's where we would have been if it weren't a special Sunday with a world mission set of texts. All this negative focus, it's, it's tough. We've sat with it for a while. It's not felt comfortable. But I want to make sure that we don't hear that communicating that God's mission isn't visibly succeeding anywhere at all. I want to point out that there are a lot of places, especially if we, if we stop navel-gazing, if we take our eyes off of maybe our American or our Western nation kind of context, there are places in the world where the gospel is running, where, where a kingdom is just moving forward, it's on fire, where mission is succeeding in a visible, obvious way. And that's amazing, and God is glorified in that. We rejoice with that. But we have to come to grips with the reality of our local situation. That's still true. And there is a lot that can discourage us when it comes to looking for God's mission happening around us. Like Isaiah, we can tell God what frustrates us. We can tell God, I, I can't see anything happening, and you're responsible for what comes next. But also, like Isaiah, we need more. This isn't the end of the sermon. 
This isn't the conclusion. This isn't the punchline. It's not just like, yay, it's happening in a different country, so cool. Um, there's more. We need the next couple verses, the end of the journey, the triumph of good over evil. We need to hear God's vision for mission. And that brings us to the conclusion. Verses 5 and 6, we see the unimaginable success of God's mission. Isaiah starts to bring us to the word of God. In verse 5, he says, And now the Lord says, and then he interrupts himself and goes on for like five or six lines of poetry about who God is. Let's pause with his little preaching to himself, with his little interruption here. Now the Lord says, the one who formed me in the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, that Israel might be gathered to him. For I am honored in the sight of the Lord, and God has become my strength. Isaiah is responding to word, with words that recall his own previous complaints. He was prepared in obscurity. Well, now he says, I am honored in the sight of the Lord. What better antidote for obscurity is there than that? He says, I feel like my strength has been poured out, has been spent on nothing, on vanity, but my God has become my strength. So Isaiah, is, is, we're seeing him process his feelings in real time, right? Uh, he's actually kind of preaching to himself. He, he feels what he feels, and those feelings are real. Thanks, Sven the Reindeer. Uh, parents of small children get that one. Uh, but also he knows that his feelings are like a tunnel, and he's moving through them. He's not just sitting in that tunnel in the dark, eoring his way around. But that's not enough. Because finally he gets to God's answer, and God steps in and doesn't just respond to the exact details of Isaiah's complaint from a couple of verses ago. God actually, I think it's fair to say, gently corrects Isaiah's self-encouragement that we just looked at. As good as that was, God makes it better. He says, is it, it is too light a thing. It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and restore the survivors of Israel. Well, hang on a second. Isn't that my goal? Isn't that my isn't that what a prophet to Israel should do? Restore Israel? God says, look, my friend, it's, it's great that you're feeling better about your mission to the nation, but that's not a big enough vision. Buckle your seatbelt. We're not stopping there. I will give you as a light to the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Wow. If that verse sounds familiar, it's because it's our seasonal greeting. We've opened every service during Epiphany season with those words. I love the image of light that God is using here, light to the nations. A few months ago, we started Advent season with a sermon in Isaiah 2, where the call to walk in the light of the Lord by following Jesus, the light of the world. In chapter 9, Isaiah continues with this light metaphor, saying that people who walk in darkness have seen a great light. And who's that great light? Well, it's a child who's born to us, a son who's born for us. And by the time we get to the end of Isaiah's light references, we're all the way out in chapter 60. We're, we're in big, like, restoration, return, hope kind of territory in Isaiah's book. And here's what Isaiah writes about light in chapter 60, verse 19 and 20. The sun shall no more be your light by day, nor for brightness shall the moon give you light by night. But the Lord will be your everlasting light, and your God will be your glory. Your sun shall no more go down, nor your moon withdraw itself, for the Lord will be your everlasting light, and your days of mourning shall be ended. In case you thought I got confused and accidentally read John 21, uh, nope, that was Isaiah. Uh, but we can see Isaiah and John are seeing the same conclusion to the story. They've got the same prophetic vision. They're seeing God step in with the same metaphors, the same pictures, the same vision. This mission isn't merely local, it's not regional, it's not national, though there are things for us to do at all those levels. God is the light of the nations, drawing all people to faithfulness, to holiness, to justice, to worship around God's throne. So I'm going to wrap up our message with a little bit of application and drawing these themes together with a perhaps predictable punchline. Can anybody think of any other 
major narratives in scripture that start with humble obscurity, include some years of little visible progress, but then end with unimaginable success? Yeah, like, like kids in Sunday school. It doesn't matter what the question is. The answer is always Jesus, right? Um, yes, an unknown prophet born in Bethlehem? Seriously? Raised in Nazareth? Really? Despised and rejected by his own people and local leadership? Executed like a criminal? A mere, a mere handful, a sliver of the people who followed him actually bothered getting close enough to see. But then, by being lifted up, he draws all people to himself. By taking up his life again, he sits at God's heavenly throne till the mission is accomplished. Isaiah 49 gives us a giant, lofty, motivating vision about light to the nations and salvation for the ends of the earth. And Jesus says, that's me. I'm fulfilling this prophecy. What's written then, that's me. That's what I'm doing. Big visions, lofty motivations, those are great. But can we conclude with some very specific questions? I want to ask us three questions that are going to reveal what immediate actions we can take to participate in this mission today. Things we can do this week, this month, to be part of mission. First off, question is, do you have money? Donate some. Donate some here to Advent. Now, I can say that without anybody worrying or accusing me of having a conflict of interest because I don't get paid. Um, not here. Uh, give money to Advent. Portions of that money will be distributed and shared among other mission partners that we work with, that we support, here locally around the Denver metro area and around the world. And if you still have more money you want to donate, you can find some of those partners or other people you know of on your own, and you can just give money right to them. They don't tell you this, but there's no rules against giving money to anybody doing God's work. That's totally cool. Um, that's, you know, we don't want to rely on money as if that's the fix, but when we have it, it can go places that we physically can't. So let's use that to make eternal investments. Second question, maybe not money, but do you have time? Why not donate that? You can spend time praying. Jesus said, pray to the Lord of harvest to send forth laborers. You can pray for that by yourself. You can pray about that, about that with your family. You can find friends from church and meet over lunch and pray about that. You can read newsletters from specific mission partners and people involved in, in the mission around the world and pray for them. You can invest your time in prayer. You can invest your time also volunteering. Grab a pastor or a deacon around here. I'm going to put Jesse and Lisa and Jordan and Cindy on the spot here, the folks I see in the room. Talk with one of them about where are volunteer activities ready and open for you. We've got an announcement coming up later. I'm not going to steal any thunder about a specific volunteer opportunity related to global mission, uh, local specifically, I should say. So sometimes you'll even find a way to serve with your time that matches some special skill or love that you have. But you don't know until you ask. Third question I have for you about ways you can be involved in mission are, do you have relationships with people who aren't following Jesus right now? Ta-da, that's mission. Talk about Jesus with them when you can. Jesus, church, things you learn in the Bible, time you spend with church friends or at activities, those are normal parts of your life, so why wouldn't you talk about them in a normal way with people who are also part of your life? Uh, I know, I know, we get all worried, we get all stressed, we, we put this anxiety in ourselves that if we don't have the right answers, and if somebody has the wrong objection, or if we don't know what comes next, or if we don't have all the verses memorized, and if we can't convert them all in one conversation, then, oh! But, you know, doesn't that feel like a, a thing similar to, parallel to Isaiah's concern earlier? We're realizing that the Lord is the one who has the wages. God is the one giving the reward. It frees us from that anxiety. It, it lets us take that burden off our own shoulders. We shouldn't have picked it up to start with. Also, bringing people into the kingdom isn't a task meant to be done by a bunch of individuals running around in isolation, so we can be kind to ourselves in that way too. Maybe instead of having a goal of like converting someone through a one-on-one -on -one conversation that's entirely on your shoulders, 
Maybe your goal is to invite them to church, to bring them to a life group dinner or some other event. Maybe, maybe we try this, instead of worrying about us verbally committing people with all the right answers and logic and apologetics and everything, maybe we are content inviting them to experience the body of Christ in real community and letting the reality, the lived experience of Christian love actually bring them into the kingdom. Maybe let that be the thing that seals the deal. Well, Father, we, we hope we've done a little justice to the grandeur of your mission. And we know that that mission flows entirely out of love. It's the love that you've poured out on us, looking on us as sheep without a shepherd, operating in perfect, pure, overflowing compassion toward us that has brought us to participate in the mission, to even be concerned about it in the first place. And so we pray that your love poured out on us would overflow, would spill over, would, would, would splash love and mission involvement and your glory all over the people around us and flowing out to the ends of the earth. May we, because of your love for us and because of our love for neighbors, be part of the mission. May we carry your light to the ends of the earth. We pray this for your glory. Amen. Thanks for listening. We encourage you to take a moment to reflect on what God might be saying to you through what you just heard. For questions, additional information, and resources, please visit adventdenver.com.